Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We are going to read the last section of this chapter that we have not yet gotten to, and then then we'll move on to chapter 14, almost halfway through this book. So, excellent. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to read from verses 31 to 35, and then verses 44 to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now skipping down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad fish away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. They probably should have said, yes, but, verse 52, he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. There is a scene from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol that keeps running through my mind. I have read the book and I have seen uh, several film adaptations and a couple stage plays of A Christmas Carol, so maybe I have this muddled in my mind. But I'm thinking of the scene when Ebenezer Scrooge meets the ghost of Christmas present. Do you remember? Scrooge is in his cold, dark bedroom and the bell tolls. Dong! Dong, two. And it wakes him up and he wonders what horror there's going to be for him now. 
and he sees just the slightest glow coming from the door in the room right next to his from underneath that closed door and it grows in brightness so that the whole door eventually is outlined in this glowing light and Scrooge very tentatively walks over and opens the door and he is assaulted by noise and smells and sound and he walks into this room and it is decorated like it has never been decorated before. It's lit with a thousand candles and tables everywhere laden with this perfect Christmas feast. And in the center is this giant of a man wearing a red robe trimmed with white fur. And he sees Ebenezer Scrooge and he laughs and he says, Come in and know me better, man. In some ways, this passage seems like the Lord Jesus turning to Matthew's readers and saying, come in and know me better. Come in to my feast. Come into my joy. I say that because joy is at the center of two of these six parables that we read this morning in verses 44 and 45. And I hope to serve you well this morning by thinking with you about the promised joy of the kingdom of heaven. That's my hope. Let's remember how we got to this chapter for, for just a minute. Chapter 13 is the third of five sermons, five teaching units that Matthew builds his book around. There's the introduction that tells us about Jesus' genealogy, his birth, his baptism. There's the conclusion that tells us about his death and resurrection, that all-important event. And in the middle, there's those five sermons around which Matthew organizes his Material And this is one of, this is the third of those five teaching units. And this sermon in chapter 13 follows a particular time of, a particular time of uh, rejection and opposition. Up to this point in time in Matthew, the religious leaders of Israel have been pecking away at Jesus and criticizing him and testing him and arguing with him a little bit. But in chapter 12, they cross the line or they draw a firm line and they say, there is no way that this man can do these miracles unless he were in league with the devil, unless he were partnered with Satan. That's how he's doing these miracles. And Jesus says to them, that they have committed a terrible blasphemy. A blasphemy that is so grievous, it can never, ever be forgiven. And then he begins teaching them in parables in chapter 13. Jesus had used uh, a picturesque language before, but here, remember in verse 34, it says, Jesus didn't say anything in public to them without speaking in parables. And Jesus uses parables in the Gospels to accomplish two different things, depending on his audience, depending on the people he is speaking to and the context in which he's speaking to them. On the one hand, Jesus uses parables to conceal truth from the hard-hearted. That's most of the crowd. That's the crowd that has accused him of being in league with Satan. Um, look at Matthew 13, verse 15. We read this a few weeks ago. Matthew 13, 15. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. If they hadn't closed their eyes, they would have eyes to see. If they hadn't closed their ears, they would have ears to hear. And they would understand, and in turn, uh, they would turn, and I would heal them. These are hard-hearted people. And Jesus tells parables to conceal the truth from these hard-hearted ones. 
There is a, an audience, it, when Jesus first spoke these parables in Matthew 13, there is a group of people that is standing there listening, and they just don't understand what Jesus is saying. They don't understand that they are at a turning point in the plan of God. They don't understand that the kingdom that they anticipated... <laughs> They anticipated a kingdom in which the Messiah would come in strength and he would be an impressive man and he would form an army of the Jews and they would kick out their Roman oppressors and he would set up a kingdom in Jerusalem and it would be a kingdom that would be full of power and riches and glory and it would dominate the world and it would put Israel back on top where they belong just like in the days of David and Solomon. That's the kingdom they were looking for. But they had rejected the king. And now in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells them that kingdom is no longer available to them. And the kingdom that is coming is a kingdom that comes, it's going to unfold in an unexpected way. So Jesus uses parables in part to conceal the truth from the hard-hearted. He also uses parables, though, to reveal the truth to those with open ears. Do you remember verse 11 tells us that uh, having ears that are open to hear the truth is a gift from God. It has been granted to you, he says to his disciples, to hear the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It's a gift to hear and to understand. And in verse 35, he, quoting Psalm 78, Matthew says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things hidden since the creation of the world. In Psalm 78, there is a poetic telling of the history of Israel. And he, uh, the, the author of Psalm 78 tells the history of Israel in order to get to a point. There's a lesson there. There's a lesson in all these events that I'm describing to you. And Jesus is using poetic language. He's telling parables. He's telling stories so that he can communicate the point of it all, the meaning of it all to those with open ears. There's eight parables in chapter 13. Uh, four of them he gives in public. The parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. And then there's four parables that he gives in private to his disciples. In private, he also explains the public uh, parables. And his subject is, of course, the unexpected way in which the kingdom is going to unfold. There's six parables here, and this morning what I want to do is I want to share with you characteristics of the unexpected unfolding kingdom. This is Jesus saying, come and know me better. And here's what he wants you to know about the work that he is doing in this in-between time. Let's start. Number one, the kingdom of heaven, four things to know, it starts small. The kingdom of heaven starts small. And here we come to the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, the yeast. Now you should know before we begin that this parable is one of the, the, the verses that people have used in the Gospels to try to diminish the Lord Jesus. They say things like, the Lord Jesus is wrong here because he says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And he's wrong about that. There are smaller seeds in the world. Now, we've heard that objection. That objection's been raised many times over the years. There's a couple of ways that you could respond to that objection. One, you could say, well, don't you know that Jesus is just using a phrase? The ancient rabbis would have this parable, Proverbs themselves, about the mustard seed being so small. It would be like 
if I said, if I talked about the lion being the king of the jungle, who's the king of the jungle? The lion's the king of the jungle. And if you came along and said, well, technically, technically, lions don't live in jungles. Lions live in savannas. I know, but it's just an expression. I'm just Well, technically, too, you should understand that on the continent of Africa, hippos, hippopotami are much more dangerous to human beings than lions, technically. Technically, that's true. And I would say to you, technically, you're a doofus. <laughs> if you get together with your friends, technically, you're doofy, right? That's how that works. He's, he's just using an expression. It's an expression that everybody would have known. Or you could also explain that uh, the, the mustard seed is indeed the smallest of all of the seeds that the uh, Jews would cultivate. That's, this is the smallest seed, type of seed that they would plant. They didn't plant anything with a smaller seed. So it's the smallest of all cultivated seeds. The point of this parable is the contrast. The contrast between the tiny size of a mustard seed and a giant mustard tree. Let me show you this picture. You see the mustard seed sitting on that finger there? It is so very small. I'm of the age where if I drop a seed like that, I will never find it again, ever. Take that tiny little seed and plant it in the ground, and it will grow to this 10 or 12 or 14 foot size tree in your garden. It will dominate all the other vegetables that you have in your garden. Birds can come and nest in this tree. And the audience should have heard Jesus speaking this way and should have thought about the one who's speaking and how at this very moment they're not very impressed with him because his group is so small and he's not the Messiah they expected. And he should have, they should have been thinking about why they're not interested in following him. They should have thought the same thing when uh, Jesus told them the parable of the leaven Kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven, a little lump of dough that you save from last week's bread. So you make last week's bread with the dough and then you set, take just a little piece and you set it aside and you use the rest of it to bake your bread for the week. And then next week you take that little lump that you have saved and you mix it into your flour. 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. That's enough flour to make bread for 150 people. And you're going to mix that little lump in, and the yeast is going to grow, and it's going to affect all of that flour, all of that dough. It's going to spread. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven starts small, but don't judge its impact by its size at the beginning. Go to Rome, if you want, in Jesus' day, and go to Rome and say to any Roman citizen walking down the street, say, say to them, hey, there's a kingdom. It's coming. It's going to be huge. It's going to dominate the whole world. And it's going to start in Palestine. And the Romans will laugh at you. No, no. Important things only begin in Rome. Go to Jerusalem, the capital, and walk in the street and find any citizen of Jerusalem and say, hey, the kingdom is coming. And they'll say, great, I've been looking forward to it. It's going to start with a preacher from Nazareth. What? No. It's not possible. No, no, it's too small. We human beings tend to disdain small things. 
I know every now and then we'll watch a, a movie or a documentary or read a, a story, a news story about some gigantic worldwide business that started in a garage or started in a living room or started uh, uh, one woman in her kitchen. I, I know there, there's those sentimental stories we see every now and then, but, but generally we're not impressed with small things. We want big things. Big things are important things. Big things are influential things. And the New Testament talks about small things a lot. It, it confronts our disdain. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Look what it says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not. That's an unusual phrase. They're so small, you could just talk about them being not. That thing is not. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Why would God do that? Why would he operate this way? So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have an obsession with big things. Big things are influential. Big things are important. Big things are impressive. Don't confuse big with important. Sometimes it's easy to confuse small with sloppy. That's not true either. Sometimes we think if it's going to be important, it's got to happen in a convention center. Important things don't happen in backyards. Important things happen in backyards all the time. The kingdom of heaven starts small. It starts with this carpenter and 12 chosen men and a group of assorted women. But it grows to become this world-dominating movement. And under the leadership of our returning king, it will rule the world. Kingdom of heaven starts small. Now, let's move on here. Number two, the kingdom of heaven is a source of joy. The kingdom of heaven is a source of joy. Two parables in verses 44 and 45. And the lesson of both of them is the same. Looking for a treasure. Well, actually, in the first parable, this man finds a treasure hidden in a field. Now, remember these days that Jesus is speaking, there's no such thing as a bank or no such things as a safe deposit box, and it was not uncommon for people to bury their treasures, especially if an invading army is coming. They're going to come to your town. What am I going to do with my valuables? I will bury them in the ground. What happens if that army comes and kills you or takes you off into captivity and you never return? Your gold res re remains there in the ground until... 50 years later, 100 years later, somebody comes and digs it up. He digs up this treasure. Never expected to find, but look at what I found in this field. Now, the law was pretty clear about this. There's an old Aramaic expression that I'm sure you will appreciate that uh, summarizes the law. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And if you'd found the treasure, you could have it. It was yours, except... Uh, there may have been, if you were working for somebody at the time, your employer may make a claim against the treasure that you found. So the safest option for you to secure the treasure is to buy the land. Even if it costs you everything you have, buy the land. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable 
than anything that you own. Try this as a thought experiment. Go through your house sometime. Try this as a thought experiment. Go through your house sometime and identify your possessions and remind yourself of their relative worth. Jesus is more important to me than this recliner that I love so much. Jesus is more important to me than this big television that I saved for. Jesus matters more to me than this stove that I have been dreaming of for a long time. Jesus is more important to me than this, my grandmother's armoire that's been in my family for a hundred years. Gone into the garage. Jesus matters more to me than this motorcycle. Jesus is more important to me than this car. If you're out in the garage, it's not too hard to go outside. Look at the whole thing. Jesus is more important to me than this house. And you know how it would go, how it would move further along, right? Jesus spoke this way. You look at the members of your family, your spouse, your children, your grandparents, I hope you didn't write this in your Valentine's Day card last week. Jesus is more, matters more to me than you do. That, he taught us to speak that way, didn't he? It's what he said. It's how we're supposed to talk. Now, in our culture, in our culture, let's be honest, the call to follow Jesus, we struggle with the call to follow Jesus that pushes us more often toward our family members than away from them. But in other cultures, where there are followers of Jesus in the minority, this call is, is serious. Jesus matters more to me than my father. Jesus matters more to me than my mother. Notice the animating principle, though. We must not miss this. The animating principle in this parable, when a man found it, verse 44, when he found the treasure that's hidden in the field, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Joy is the animating principle behind this, what, what this man is, is doing. My supposition this morning is that you don't have nearly enough joy in your life. We're not used to f- talking about following Jesus this way, that following Jesus is this great source of joy, that following Jesus is something you get to do, not something that you have to do. That it is gain, not cost. Joy, not burden. Look at what you get when you follow Jesus. You can imagine this man in this parable who's selling his house and how he's trying to keep it together because he wants a good deal in his house. But he goes to his neighbor and he says, do you want to buy my house? Sure, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm interested in it. Why are you buying? Why are you selling? And he can't contain himself. You got to play it cool, right? So you don't say it out loud. But in the inside, he's thinking, because I'm going to use the money to buy a treasure, and you can't believe it. Oh, I'm so excited about it. It's amazing. But you're selling the house, so you can't do that. Got to be cool. And um, if you're interested, you know, I, I got my car too, and and uh, my my game system, and and. Uh, I, I mean, would you like this sweater? Would you like to buy this sweater? I will sell it to you. 
because he's trying to accumulate the money to buy the treasure because the treasure is a source of great joy. Now, now, I'm not sure if you're used to talking about following Jesus that way, but it might change the way we think about some things. It might change the way, for example, we talk about, jo- uh, about sacrifice. Think for me, with me for just a minute about joy and sacrifice. The New Testament talks about sacrifice a lot. Romans 12, uh, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. The New Testament talks about sacrifice a lot. But if you're motivated by joy, is it truly sacrifice? Is it actually sacrifice? Um, following Jesus, he said this, following Jesus can sometimes feel like death. He said, take up your cross and follow me. It can feel like death. But if there's joy, if there is this joy, is it sacrifice? Um, Some of you know the name Wesley Hill. He's written a lot. I don't agree with everything Wesley Hill has said, but Wesley Hill, when he was a teenager and his interest in relationships started to grow, he recognized within himself that he had same-sex attractions. He did not want to date the girls in his high school. He wanted to date the boys in his high school. But he knows what the Bible says about being a follower of Jesus and about homosexuality, so he has committed himself to living a celibate life. And look what Wesley Hill says. This is a healthy paragraph from him. If you're someone living with homosexual feelings, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. I do believe that discipleship to him entails giving up gay sex and gay relationships. And that may be more painful to you than, you than you can imagine right now. But ultimately, Jesus is offering you the kingdom. He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you himself in the gospel. Sacrificing your sexual freedom may seem like a high price to pay, and it is a high price to pay, but he promises you a joy so stunningly great that if you felt the full weight of it now, you would literally come undone. If there's this joy, is it really sacrifice? Think about how verse 44, what it might say to us when we think about joy and commands. Joy and the commands that Jesus gives. Frederick Bruner says that this is the most helpful passage in uh, one of the most helpful passages in all the Gospels to help us think through the promises that Jesus makes and the demands that Jesus makes to us. How do we put together the joy he promises and the commands that he gives us? I want you to imagine a conversation. Imagine a conversation between uh, a, um, a person who's more experienced in following Jesus. They've got a few miles on their odometer. They've followed Jesus for a while. And a, a new believer, someone who has just turned and trusted in Christ, this conversation, the older believer says, Hey, I understand you've just trusted in Christ as your Savior. And the new believer says, Yes, yes, I have. Oh, forgiveness. He's forgiven me for all of you. Do you know what a bad person, what a terrible person is? I have been forgiven in Jesus because he died on the cross for my sins. I'm so excited. And eternal life. Ha <laughs> eternal life. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And the older believer says, well, you know, um, there's, there's more to be had. More? 
There's more to be had? Yeah, more, not, not different more, but deeper more. Like, look at Philippians, or think about uh, what Paul said in Philippians 3. Paul knew Jesus, and Paul said, I want to know Christ. He's a Christian, but he wants to know more of Christ. He wants to have a deeper relationship with Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in sufferings, becoming like him in his death, until somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, just a moment here. That word somehow does not mean that Paul is uncertain about whether or not he's going to rise from the dead. What he's uncertain about is the means by which he will rise from the dead. Will he rise from the dead by being executed? He wrote Philippians when he was in jail. Will he rise from the dead by being executed and buried and he'll rise when Jesus returns? Or will he still be alive when Jesus returns and he'll experience resurrection transformation then? He doesn't know. Somehow I'm going to attain the resurrection from the dead. That's important in that verse. But more important for our purposes now, I want to know Christ. I want more, Paul says. And that older believer says to the younger believer, you know, there's more, there's more. And the younger believer says, more, I can't believe it. Tell me, tell me, what do I have to do to get more? And the older believer says, well, if, if you really want to understand in a deeper and more significant way the forgiveness that you have received from God, then you need to forgive the people who have hurt you. And the younger believer says, is that it? That's it? That's all I have to do? I'm, I'll go home and I'll make a list because if that's what I have to do, if that's what Jesus says so that I can have more, I am in. I am in. Yes, yes, yes. What else? The other believer says, well, I mean, there's a time that Jesus told this guy that if he wanted to, to follow him, he had to go sell everything he owned and give it to the poor. And the younger believer says, yes, I'm in. It will take, it will take me, I'm not sure where I'm going to sleep. And I don't know how I'll get to work. But I'm in. I am in because I want more of Jesus. I want more. Now, just as an aside, you know that Jesus only ever said that to one person. Uh, we'll, we'll come to that in a few weeks. But do you, do you see here the relationship between joy and command? The younger believer says, what else? What else? And the older believer says, well, let's talk to you about your phone. My phone? Yes, your phone. Your phone gets you into trouble a lot, doesn't it? I guess. You know, you started following that Instagram account last summer when you were working in your backyard. You, you followed that Instagram account, Patio of My Dreams, and, and you were looking for ideas, and, and now your work is done. There's snow on the ground. You ain't doing anything in your backyard, and you're flipping through that, and it's just making you covetous. You look at all the other people who have better backyards than you'll ever have, and you're just jealous, coveting that, filled with envy. Is this doing you any good? And, and, and you know what you do with your phone when you're alone and late at night. You know the places that it takes you and it not, not to take you there. Have you thought about getting rid of your phone? Will that help me know Jesus more? Apparently, because your phone gets you in trouble a lot. Will it help me know Jesus more? Yes. Then, uh, fine, I'll get rid of it because I want more of Jesus. He has forgiven me. He has given me eternal life. I want more. I'll do whatever. I will do whatever he commands so that I might know him more. Are you used to talking about following Jesus that way? 
Is that the way you talk about following Jesus in your house so your kids can hear you talk about following Jesus that way? Do you know what will become really important? It will be really important when your child is 12 years old and they're invited to participate in the Premier League of their favorite sport. And you'll look at the paperwork, you'll get the paperwork, and the cost for the Premier League is exorbitant. You can cover that. That's okay. The, the big problem is, though, that the Premier League means Sunday games out of state for months at a time. And you know, you know what Jesus says about gathering together on Sundays with his people. So what are you going to do at that moment in time with your 12-year-old? Are you going to be able to say no for the sake of joy? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when she when you say no and she bursts into tears and she runs to her room because they're all her friends and she loves this game and she loves this sport and you said no because of church. Church, you said no because of church. What are you going to say then? If you're not used to talking about Jesus this way. Can I suggest to you at that moment in time that you go into your own room and you get down on your knees and you plead with God over this passage, that you would plead with him that he would show your 12-year-old daughter the joy that Jesus promised in this verse. Plead with him that she would know the joy of following Jesus and that it is no sacrifice to say yes to him if you have to say no to other things. Plead with God that she would know this so that when she's 15 or 17 or 23 and you're not there to say no, she says no on her own because she knows the joy of following Jesus. Plead with God. There's parables in these, there's power in these parables. I want it to be very clear to everyone in this congregation that joy in the kingdom he promised is the animating principle behind everything that we do as a church. May God make that so. Now we have to move on. We can just barely mention these last two, shall we? The kingdom of heaven culminates in separation. The kingdom of heaven culminates in separation. In verse 47, Jesus tells a parable that's very similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. There's a mixture right now going on in the world. It's vexing to the disciples, and Jesus tells them that it's part of God's plan, and it's okay. Um, God will take care of it sometime. If you take a dragnet and you dry, uh, drag it through the uh, lake, the sea... You're going to catch all kinds of fish, good, bad, and ugly. And the first thing you have to do when you take your net back to the shore is separate the fish. Put the ones you want to keep in a basket and throw the rest of them away. Jesus says at the end of the age, the wicked are going to be thrown into a burning furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the context, the distinction between the fish that are worth keeping and the fish that are not, the righteous and the wicked, in context... The righteous are the ones who are in pursuit of the joy that Jesus promised in the kingdom, and the wicked are the ones who don't care about it. Jesus uses this unusual phrase for fish in verse 47, that the net 
catches all kinds of fish. Kinds is an unusual word to, to describe fish. It's a, it's a more common word in Jesus' day to describe human beings. And I wonder if he's not giving a hint here of the multi-ethnic organization, the church, that he is going to start very soon. It's going to have all kinds of people in it. To the Jews that were listening to him, they were the righteous and everybody else was not. They're the ones that's going to be, that are going to be separated. All those Gentiles, those dirty dog Gentiles are going to be separated from us. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 there is a separation, but it's different than what you will expect. Don't be vexed. Don't be vexed by the mingling right now. Separation is coming. Number four, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure of the old and new. It's a treasure of the old and new. In verse 52, he tells them this parable that's barely a sentence, this parable about um, when they're fully trained, when, when, they're, when they're teachers, what sort of teachers they will be. They will be the sort of teachers who will show how the old promises manifest themselves in the new realities, how the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament, how the old points forward to new life. One wonders if Matthew may be kind of talking about himself here. Because Matthew has said over and over again, all these things happened that Jesus did to fulfill the prophecy saying, you know, he constantly is, is connecting the old to the new. And that's the way we want the Bible taught in our church, showing how God's old promises manifest themselves in these new realities. Now, I want to finish by briefly talking about Jesus going home to Nazareth in verses 53 to 58. One wonders, is this the end of the sermon, uh, the teaching unit in 13, in chapter 13, or is it the beginning of the narrative section that's going to follow? Could be either. But Jesus, after he delivers these parables, goes home. He goes back to Nazareth, and the Nazarenes are not impressed. They don't believe. They're hard-hearted. They are like that first soil in the, Jesus, the story Jesus told. They're like the soil of the path where the seed comes and it doesn't take root at all because of their hard hearts. Maybe that's why this, this account is here, just as an illustration of what Jesus has been teaching. They know Jesus too well to be impressed. Where did he get so, this wisdom? We know he didn't go to rabbi school. Where'd he get these miraculous powers? He's not Harry Potter. He didn't go to Hogwarts to do miracles. We know, we know. Well, who does he think he is? We know where he came from. We know his mama. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. Uh, 400, for the first 400 years of the church, uh, theologians wrote and tried to puzzle through the mystery of the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. And how, how, did that, how does that work out? There were some people who would defend Jesus' deity, his divinity, by diminishing his humanity. Yeah, he's fully God, but not really human. In this passage, they're saying, yeah, he's human. He can't be anything more. He can't be the Messiah. We know him. We've known him his whole life. I wonder why no one in the town spoke up. Don't you imagine if Jesus grew up in Nazareth and he was a perfect kid that he would have stood out a little bit? Where You've seen all those documentaries, right? Uh, uh, documentaries of uh, uh, famous athletes or famous leaders. They do a, a biography, a documentary biography, and they go back and find their third grade teacher. 
Mrs. Edna Taylor, 92 years old, taught th uh, third grade for 36 years at Breckenridge Elementary School, and they put her on the screen, and they interview her. Mrs. Taylor, tell us about Elizabeth. Well, I knew. I knew the first time that, that Elizabeth walked into my classroom that she was someone special. We all knew it. Where's Jesus' third grade teacher? That's what I want to know in this passage. Why is no, one's, no one is coming forward. They are offended at him, the text says. They took offense at him. And they never asked him to do any miracles. And I think to myself how sad, because there was probably some suffering kid in Nazareth, and his parents would not believe in Jesus enough even to bring their sick kid to ask Jesus to heal him. That's how this chapter ends. This turning chapter ends with Jesus rejected by his own hometown, the people who should have known him the best. And I want to go back to Nazareth and I want to say to them, hasn't he given you enough evidence to believe? Hasn't he given you enough evidence to believe in him? There was John the Baptist. He came. He told you to get ready. You have his genealogy. It's in the Nazareth town hall. You can go look. He's a child of David. You can't explain where this wisdom came from and all of these miracles. You have no idea where they came from. Do you suppose that they maybe came from God? Won't you listen to him? Won't you believe in him and bend the knee to him? Here he is. He's in your midst. You know him. You can trust in him. That question that I want to ask them gives me the opportunity to ask you a very similar question, dear friend. Won't you turn and trust in the Lord Jesus? Hasn't he given you enough evidence of who he is? We have this book that is about him. It hums with life as you read it, telling us what he said and what he did. And there's the people that brought you to church a friend who invited you, or maybe your parents have been dragging you for years. Can you not see in their life the difference that following Jesus makes? Will you not turn and trust in him and find life and forgiveness in him, he who died for your sins and rose again? There is judgment that is coming. Jesus spoke about it more than anybody else in the Bible, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But more importantly, there is joy. There is joy to be found in the Lord Jesus. Joy that is worth giving up everything you are and everything you own to have. Will you not turn and trust in him? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus who spoke to us about his kingdom a kingdom of life and light and joy. A kingdom that for now is unfolding in an unexpected way, in which we are sometimes vexed. Lord, we confess to you that sometimes those who vex us the most are ourselves. Sometimes, Lord, we, we forget that, that following Jesus is not something that we must do, but something that we get to do. 
we sometimes feel it as burden and not joy, sacrifice and not blessing. So help us. Help us to remember what the Lord Jesus said. In his joy, he sold everything he had to own it. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. And I would like to speak to you, friend, who are here this morning who may not be a follower of Jesus. Oh, I, I would, I, today would be an, an excellent day for you to turn to him and trust in him. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. Take you into his family. Identify yourself with him so that you might have life and forgiveness in his name, our risen, crucified Savior. If you have more questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I would love to talk to you today about it. I'll be at the front of the auditorium at the end of the service. You can talk to me. You can talk to Pastor Scott. You can talk to uh, Ed Hare, who, who prayed. He, he would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. He has given us enough evidence to turn and trust in him. Oh, please, today. Father, we are thankful to you for the assurance, the assurance that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the day and anticipation, we pray, of that day that he returns and calls us to be with him. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.